Uh, we're in the book of Jude, and so go ahead and turn in the New Testament to the small, tiny book of Jude, right before Revelation, and we're going to jump in this morning and see what Jude can teach us. So Jude, right before the book of Revelation, and it's just a one-chapter book, it's a very short book, and we're going to try and capture again uh, a little bit of the sense of the argument here, and then uh, try and analyze it and pick it apart. So uh, Jude begins this way. It says, Jude, uh, in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Again, Jude would probably be the youngest brother of Jesus and also brother of James, who was kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, in other words, to write about all the cool things going on and how fun it is that we're in this together with the salvation, I felt that I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you, and they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So what has always been foretold, that there was always going to be a little bit of yeast or bad yeast or the, the ability for, for ungodly people or heretical people to kind of work themselves into the community of believers, that this has always been a danger, always been the case, that this is actually happening in the New Testament church, the church of, uh, in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, that people are getting in, leaders are getting in, teachers are getting in, who are subtly leading people astray. Subtly leading people astray. And that's the key word, subtly. That this is happening slowly, that it has an, an air of kind of rightness to it, but it's not. And this is leading people to deny Jesus Christ really as being sovereign and Lord. And so he continues and says, though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. He led his people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. The interesting thing you see in the Old Testament is that the Israelites that get carried into the promised land, that God says of them that not all Israel was true Israel. What does that really mean? Not all Israel was true Israel. It, it, means that if you draw a circle around those who are called by the name Israelites, that there's an ethnic group or there's kind of a, a community that way, but not all of them are true believers. Not all of them truly follow God. Not all of them really trust God. And so there's a smaller circle within the bigger circle of those that are actually or truly in a relationship with God. And the same is true today. If we drew a big circle and we said, this is the church or the community of people that call themselves Christians, that we can kind of draw a big circle, all the people on Facebook that you know, pass on Christian Facebook posts or, or whatever it might be, or wear Christian jewelry or do any kind of affiliation with Christ, um, within that there's actually a smaller circle of people who, who actually have a relationship with God, who if you were able to get into their hearts, believe and trust, don't just identify, but truly have that relationship with God. And so Jude is kind of speaking to this. And he's saying, back then, you know that this was the case. Um, that God led people out, but then later destroyed those who did not believe. Because not everyone who was led out actually believed. 
And they did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned, abandoned their own home. And these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the, on the great day. And if we, um, if we go a little bit further, it talks about how this is the same of angels who left their first home uh, and slandered and abused the power that they have. Um, and then we get to this kind of verse 11, the woes. It says, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain and they have rushed after prophet into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So the first thing I want to say this morning is we see, we see four different kinds of error being talked about. Four different kinds of error being talked about. The first one is back in uh, verse 4, and it talks about using um, grace as a license for immorality. Using grace as a license for immorality. So the first thing we see is that what's going on in the church, the early church there in Jerusalem, is that people are abusing grace, uh, abusing the gift of salvation, and they're abusing it so that they can um, run headlong into immorality uh, or hedonism or, or pleasure at any cost. No boundaries um, but immorality. So that's the first thing we see. And then the other three come from the people mentioned in verse 11. Um, first Cain, and what do we know of Cain, Cain and Abel? What we know of Cain is that Cain envied his brother. Cain envied his brother, he was jealous, and then in his anger and in his rage, he killed his brother. So what we, um, what we see is not the murder so much, but the state of the heart that was going on, and that that's kind of another representation of the godless men or, or the people that that are abusing grace or, or misunderstanding the gospel or Jesus as sovereign as Lord. Immorality is the first thing. And then the second thing, following after Cain, envy, jealousy, anger, rage. Balaam's error was basically someone that was asked to bless the Israelites uh, as they were coming into the promised land. And then he decided that um, this would be a good way to make a profit. And so he sought a prophet sought a reward in order to bless the Israelites. And so basically was saying, out of this whole religious thing that's going on, I see an opportunity for personal gain and I'm going to hold what God is doing or I'm going to, in, in some attempt, try to hold what God is doing at bay until I can position myself for a prophet. Um, and that's Balaam's error. And, and so what Jude is saying is these godless people that deny Jesus as sovereign and Lord are also doing it ultimately for personal profit. You see that in the New Testament as well. That Simon the sorcerer, if you're familiar with that story, when, when the apostles went into an area uh, and were bringing the gospel, a sorcerer, a man of power that had kind of um, been able to control the people or position himself to control the people, saw the power that the apostles had. He basically said, I want that too. I want, the, I want that Holy Spirit too. And they looked at him and said, you, you're misunderstanding this because you want the Holy Spirit for the wrong reasons. You're basically wanting to trade the sorcery for the Holy Spirit so that you can continue to work that advantage the way you used to use your sorcery. Um, and again, uh, Balaam's error. Um, and Korah's rebellion, Korah and led a bunch of other people to question the authority that was given to Moses and Aaron, basically the authority in the community. And 
Um, I think this is a very subtle kind of rebellion, and I think we see it in a lot of different ways, but we're a generation that doesn't like authority in America. We don't, we don't like authority. We don't like it in school when we're little kids. Um, little, little kids these days don't have to respect authority. And then in the church, we don't like authority. I think in society, we don't like authority. We don't pray for our government because we don't respect our government. Um, we, don't, we don't recognize any kind of positional authority and, and readily submit to that. It's an interesting thing when you see people tackle authority, they'll use instances of bad authority, um, abuse of authority, as, in, as a, uh, an argument to reject all authority. What I mean by that is um, there's such a thing as church abuse and spiritual abuse, and it happens, and it's incredibly damaging, and if you've been the victim of it, then you know how, how hard that is. And then there's a little less damaging. There's just unhealthy leadership or unhealthy churches or unhealthy um, pastors or situations that way. Um, so there's downright abuse and then there's just unhealth. Just like there are some families where there's abuse, out-and-out -out child abuse or an abusive culture. Um, and then there are families that are maybe not abusive, but they're just unhealthy, right? So... so in church or in the Christian world and when you're talking about leadership, just like with families, there can be the bad instances of abuse and there can also be the presence of unhealth. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, just because there are abusive families uh, and unhealthy families, we would never see an orphan and go, wow, so good for you. Um, this is so good for you. Because you are not in an abusive family, you're not in an unhealthy family, you've actually come outside of that structure altogether, isn't this a wonderful, wonderful thing um, that you're not going to get caught up in any of those unhealthy forms of family? I mean, we would, never, we would never say that. If we see an orphan, we immediately are moved with compassion and we go, this is not a good situation. Yes, there are abusive homes. Yes, there are unhealthy homes. But that just means we have to work all the harder to try to find a healthy home to get this, this kid or these children into. Does that make sense? Well, the same is true with church. There, there are abusive forms and abusive situations. There are unhealthy forms and unhealthy situations. But when you see a Christian that's not in a church, we shouldn't be going, oh, that's so good that you found a way to be a Christian outside of all of those church family kind of body of Christ situations because, you know, they can be abusive or unhealthy. It's actually really good that you find yourself as a spiritual orphan. This is wonderful. And just like that would be silly with, with normal orphans, that, that should be silly in our thinking with regard to church. And we should say to a person like that, I know you've been hurt, or I know that there are, are bad situations that are out there. But we have to work all the harder then to try to find a healthy situation to get you into because you belong in a family. You belong in a spiritual family. Does that make sense? But when you look at the arguments today uh, that I see going all around on social media or anywhere else, it's always just taking bad examples uh, of failed leaders and using that as an excuse to reject all forms of authority. And bad leadership is not an argument for no leadership. Bad leadership ought to be an argument for why we need good leadership. Does that make sense? Okay. So Korah's rebellion is this idea of 
of trying to topple hierarchies or trying to topple, uh, topple leadership positions that God himself has instituted. Now, we're in the New Testament era. We're not in the desert. We're not uh, where Moses and Aaron are. But are there authority systems and structures that God has, has put in place for our day and age today? Are there, are there authority systems in the New Testament that God has, has lifted up or, or pieced together to say these matter and I want these to work in my, my kind of New Testament community in the kingdom? And the answer is yes. And I think we can look at it and say um, Korah's rebellion can still happen today. The people, uh, one, can be taken aside by pleasure seeking. Number two, they can be taken aside by envy or jealousy, or rage. Number three, they can be taken aside with a desire for profit, Balaam's error. Uh, or four, they can be taken aside because they don't want to submit to authority, or they want to reject all authority, or they want to be without, um, without kind of an authority over them. And in doing so, in order to raise ourselves up without authority, we're going to attack the authority structures that ought to exist or that God has put in place in the New Testament church. So here are four things that Jude kind of gives us um, to frame what's going on when things are not working the way they ought to be working. Four things. And if we turn uh, over, um, we're going to get some analogies of what this really means. By the way, uh, let's just take an aside. So uh, Jude is one of the books in the New Testament that if we get really get into the theology of it, is talking about what is known as the anti, uh, antinomian heresy. Okay, so the antinomian heresy, I don't know how big I need to write for you to read it, but so antinomian heresy, um, basically namas um, is the Greek uh, transliteration for uh, law. And so basically, um, the antinomian heresy is, is saying that because we're saved by faith or because we're under grace, that the moral law itself has no hold on us. So the antinomian heresy is basically saying you're completely free. There's no law that governs you anymore, um, but, but it's pure grace, grace at the front, grace at the back. Um, and the first person to coin this phrase, the antinomian heresy, was uh, Martin Luther, because he was being accused, the Lutherans were being accused of abusing grace. And so he had to refine his arguments to say, no, just because we believe in salvation by faith through grace um, or by grace through faith, uh, that by no means are we saying that the moral law itself is somehow suspended. Um, by no means are we saying that. And this debate shows up in the early church going all the way back to the book of Acts when you had on, on one hand, you had what was called the Judaizers who were saying for people to be saved, they had to follow all of the strictures of the law. The, the, the people had to first become Jews and follow all of the Jewish law and then they could be saved. And so you had this real debate. I mean, do people have to become, kind of convert to Judaism and then somehow find the Messiah? Or did Jesus die so that people could come to him by faith regardless of whether uh, they're following the kind of the cultural or the, or the ethnic Jewish law? And so this was the debate early on in the New Testament. And so if you turn to Acts 15, you can see what comes of that. Um, 
Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, and this is James now, the one that Jude was talking about when he did his introduction. In Acts 15, verse 19, they render the decision on what is going on, uh, ironically, at the church in Antioch. And they say this, uh, James says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for these Gentiles who are turning to God, meaning that they should somehow come all the way underneath the law and then have to find the Messiah. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from, from food polluted by idols, idolatry, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in, in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so uh, they write to Paul and they say this, um, and then they eventually tell him also not to forget looking after the poor, and so they kind of add that justice element to it. But the interesting thing that's being said here is that the moral law, what immorality is and that God, who God is, and that we shouldn't have any idols, that that has been preached to all these cultures, that in other words, those basic things shouldn't be foreign to the ears of the Gentiles, that, that they should have a basic understanding of what holiness or purity is. And so James is writing and saying, no, you don't have to do all of these things. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to become all the way like the Jews, but you do have to recognize that the moral law or understanding that you have to be holy because God is holy that, that that's a basic moral requirement. Does that make sense? So this is kind of what's going on in the early church with regard to framing out Judaism on one side uh, or the Judaizers, and do we just take everything and throw it away and people just come to Jesus and that's all there is to it? And the answer is really no, there's something in the middle and I don't really know how it all works out, but in being saved by our faith and, and the grace that, that comes through Jesus, that somehow in that, there's also tied to it this basic sense, whether it emanates from it, whether it goes along with it, whether the two can't be separated, but the fruit that comes from a tree that is alive, um, that holiness, that goodness, that morality, it, it ought to be there. And so that's what Luther had to argue. Um, very few groups would actually want to claim to be antinomians, by the way. So um, even people that go way down the grace road are not going to want to claim to be antinomian and say that the moral law in some sense doesn't hold anymore. Um, nobody really wants to say that. But so Jude is arguing against this antinomian heresy, and this is what he says of those leaders that have worked their way in, uh, verse 12. He says that these men are blemishes at your love feasts, that when you come together for fellowship meals or for communion, that, that they actually are a blemish on that, eating with you without the slightest qualm. It's interesting that Christians that claim to be Christians that that arguably may not really have a relationship with God, the interesting thing is they have no qualms about sitting in the Christian community. Um, I, I know of pastors who have had no qualms about preaching for a year or two or three while having extramarital affairs. I mean, it's, uh, there's an article that went up recently about 
uh, an embezzlement case against the pastor of the largest church in the world who's been the pastor there for a long time in South Korea and for a lot of time was the model of church growth and the cell church movement um, or cell group movement and had been embezzling up to $15 million, uh, U.S. dollars. And, and it's interesting that when people are falling into this error and doing things out of envy or for themselves or uh, rejecting even Christ's authority or the church's authority, that they have no qualms about sitting in, in the feast. That some of the people you'd see on, on TBN, it's not TBN, what, is it TBN? The, the show I don't like? Uh, or the network, it's the network I don't like. Uh, and I have to qualify that because people have come to me and said that they really like the network and I can't say out and out that I don't like the network. There's things on that network though that fall into this category for me that are really about um, driving an agenda and manipulation for financial gain. Um, there's some things that are really disturbing to me on that show. And the interesting thing when you're watching is that you're like, man, some of the things that are coming out of these people's mouths, if you pay $15,000, I'll etch your name into, my, into the wood of the prayer room uh, on my private jet. But if you pay $50,000, I'll etch you into the wood that goes over the doorway on my private jet so that I pray for you every time I come and go. You know, and, and you, you hear things like that when you're kind of flipping through those channels and, and, uh, and you're like, you're actually, you're actually saying that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you look over your shoulder and you're like, um, I don't know why I just looked over my shoulder because I'm watching TV. It's not like there's anyone else. But, but it's like, you know, you have that instinctual reaction of going, is, is anybody else hearing what I'm hearing? Um, and I'm talking about myself because that's what I did when I saw that particular one uh, of Benny Hinn. Um, I don't normally um, out people, but I, I figured I'd give you his initials. Um, <laughs> but you kind of are watching and you, you know, you're looking over your shoulder like, did I just hear that? And do you have your own logo on your clothes? Really? Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, and so that's what Jude is saying. He's like, man, this is, this is in your community. It's in there. Like it's, it's taking part in kind of the Christian conversation. And these people, they don't have the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves after Ezekiel 34. And if you want, go look up these passages um, later. It's well worth it. Jude is quoting scripture here, rapid fire. So after Ezekiel 34, shepherds who feed only themselves. they are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Turn to Proverbs 25 real quick because this one's worth looking at. Proverbs 25 uh, verse 14 says this. Like clouds in wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. Like clouds in wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. And so the picture here is this of leaders coming in ostensibly, supposedly, having some sort of power to nurture or to grow or to make things flourish or come to life, yet, yet there's no 
delivering on that promise. There's no actual power. There's no actual rain. There's no blessing that comes. And so shepherds who feed only themselves or clouds without rain blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. This is an unbelievable um, metaphor that Jude drives out here. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. So the idea is a tree without fruit. Remember how Jesus came in and cursed the fig tree and, and there's this, this idea of a, a tree that ought to be bearing fruit that doesn't have any fruit um, is, is an abomination. It takes up water or it, it gets in the way or it takes up land. It's, it's something that's um, inconsistent with itself. Do you get that picture? It's inconsistent with itself. It, it's supposed to be bearing fruit, yet it doesn't have any fruit, so it's dead. And then Jude says, but now I want you to picture it as being uprooted and, and flipped on its side with the roots kind of dry in, in the wind and, and going every which way. And you look at that thing and you go, not only does it not have any good, valuable fruit on it, but it, it can't. It never will. It's dead. Um, we were driving to California one time and on the um, five freeway, have you guys ever, I mean, ever driven that? And you know all the signs and billboards of Congress stole our water and, and there's a lot of that kind of debate going on. Um, Congress is to blame for this dust bowl and you kind of see all those things. Well, there's one time where there was a, a, an orchard that was dead and, and kind of was uprooted. And you look at it and it's, it's an abomination. It's, it's everything that the orchards on the other side of the freeway are not. It's twice dead. And so Jude is giving us this picture and he's saying, this is actually what that kind of leadership is. It, it's completely unable to give you anything spiritual. Um, it's a powerful metaphor. And then it says this, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. And that's taken straight from Isaiah 57, verse 20. There are wild waves of the sea. So God is judging people. In the Old Testament, you see Jude bringing that same language back and saying, these people that lead God's people astray are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. They're wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So, this is a really big deal to Jude. He's like, I wanted to write like a pastoral letter, but instead, I'm trying to write a letter to frame to you that there's some subtle stuff going on within the circle that's called Christianity. And it shows up in your meetings or on your television shows or in, in the books, in the Christian living section or on the Christian blogs. or It, it shows up inside the circle, but it is so far from harmonizing with what what the message is you should be listening to, that it's incredibly, incredibly um, dangerous. And, I'm, and I want you to be aware of this, and I want you to look for it, and I want you to find it, and I want you to, when you see it, know to separate from it, know to get away from it, because little by little, this will subtly destroy you or poison you. Why will it subtly destroy you or poison you? Because I think deep down inside, we all are looking for somebody in spiritual, uh, in a spiritually uh, spiritual leadership position or with spiritual authority. We're 
we kind of are hungry for somebody in a position like that to give us permission to, to believe what we, we hope is true, that it's really about us, to give us permission to do what we want and we've been fighting for years to not do something and somehow if, it, if it's okay, then we'll go do that. Um, I don't know if there's kids. Are there kids in here? I need to be careful. Um, I shared with uh, the men's group this Tuesday morning. I don't go to that men's group because it starts at like 6 o'clock. felt like 3 o'clock. But, uh, but I got to go to the men's thing um, this Tuesday morning, and I shared a bit. And I started sharing. I think it was somehow probably because I was really tired. But I just started sharing, and my testimony kind of just went to the dark side. And then just stayed there. Um, and I can't share all that this morning. Um, but there's, there's an aspect of this story that I think is incredibly important. So I somehow got this message when I was in high school growing up. That you just believe in Jesus and that's all. That's all. Period. Everything's forgiven. Everything will be forgiven. Nothing really matters. Um, and so it was a really interesting thing for me. I remember one time coming back from downtown at Clemson my freshman year. It would have been probably the second half of my freshman year. And there were some Christian kids that were preaching to people. And they were really kind of um, getting after them for coming back from the bars and this is not the life you want and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm walking back and, I'm, and I remember, I mean, just think of this, okay? I remember thinking to myself, how dumb these guys are. All they should be doing is, is just making sure that people say that magic prayer and stop trying to hassle people about downtown and the bars and such. Right? I had somehow gotten this easy, cheap grace message that it was just all about saying some magic prayer that, by the way, never shows up in Scripture. And that that's really all that matters. And so I believed it so much that I was so far from God. Um, when I tell my testimony, I absolutely say I got saved at age 22. Because I know that that's when I, I had a relationship that was radically different that began. And it, it had the aspect of Christ's lordship and sovereignty in my life. Like, it was, like Jude's talking about. So it's easy for me to say, I know when that began in my life was age, age 22. But so here I am as a college freshman and I've somehow been around church culture and been in churches, and, and, but the message that I had received from evangelicalism and from youth groups and, and, and whatever it was, was this kind of false gospel. False gospel. And so here's the second half of that. And this is what I mean by we're all looking for permission. Um, I knew, however, that there was lines I wouldn't cross. Um, I wouldn't do drugs. I would do a whole lot of things, but I wouldn't do drugs, right? Why? I don't, I don't know. Um, because I grew up Republican, maybe. Um, there wasn't medical marijuana back then. I, I don't know, but there was, there was lines that I wouldn't cross. Um, until the second semester of my freshman year. 
And I can tell you that the night that I first did drugs was 10 minutes after my mom called me and said that the pastor of the church that I had been affiliated with in high school that my parents still went to, that the pastor of that church had been having an affair for a very long time, had taken his wife's inheritance, gone to Atlantic City and gambled it away, um, and, uh, but, and then had, had run off with the secretary. I can picture that conversation as if it happened yesterday. I hung up the phone. I thought, well, doesn't that beat all? And if, if guys like that are just going to do whatever the heck they want, well, then why in the world would I, you know, actually have any boundaries? Um, that's just dumb. I'm over it. And 10 minutes later, I was down the hall in, in my friend's dorm room. Um, that's the first night I ever did drugs. So when I hear of a pastor falling, which I hear, I hear these stories a lot. I see these stories a lot. Some of you might have been in churches where a pastor's fallen. I, I know exactly what's going to happen. There's a whole high school, college, 20-something group that right away is going to be faced with this, this thought of, oh yeah, nice. The guy that was talking to me about courtship and, and things like that and staying pure and trying to honor uh, God and yeah, okay. I wonder, wonder what that really should look like. And so I, grew, I mean, I, when I see those things, I mean, I immediately go into a panic and I think, of my, uh, think to myself, it has nothing to do with whether that church is, is going to, wow, they're going to have some hard times. They probably need to find an interim pastor to come in. They might lose 20%. You know, they, boy, that's really going to be hard on, you know, the staff and they got to figure this out. I don't think about any of that. For me, I remember freshman year of college, and I know exactly what is happening in the margins with individual lives, thinking that through and saying, what's the point of any of this? What's the point of having boundaries? What's the point of listening? What's the point of listening to the message? Um, and so Jude is saying, you got to understand that you have to contend for the true gospel. You have to call a spade a spade. You have to find out what's going on when the message is being cheapened or hollowed out. And you gotta, you got to draw it to the surface and you got to get away from it. It's dangerous because little by little, you're going to want to find permission in that. And you're going to want to say, well, if so-and-so is doing that, why, why wouldn't I? Or if nobody's really living this, um, if nobody's really being an example, then why would I continue to fight the good fight? And so Jude is saying, I want you to contend for this. You need, you need to fight and you need to care. And so um, it's so subtle. And so I want to give you um, two things that I think are lost in this debate between grace and law. Um, 
Because ultimately it's not about go bear fruit. See, this message I've heard it preached, you know, don't be a cloud without rain. Don't be a cloud without rain. Make sure you deliver on the thing that ought to be there because you're a Christian. That's not actually what this book's about. This book is about false teachers and that you have to contend to keep the message the message. And the message isn't go work harder. It's not go go bear fruit, go bear rain because you're a Christian. Go work harder and work yourself to the ground you know, and just, just muscle it, right? That's not the message. How does fruit come about in your life? Fruit comes about in your life as you walk in a dynamic and intimate relationship with your, with your Lord, with Christ. Jude's message here is all about the sovereignty and the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he's kind of the savior. And he goes on and says, you gotta learn to pray in the spirit. And don't, these other guys, they follow their mere natural, this is verse 19, they follow their mere natural instincts, but they don't have the spirit. What Jude is contending for here is not more effort. What he's contending for here is that we submit and we, we find ourselves in relationship with Jesus, that there's spiritual power. So John 15, remember that Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're good only to be kind of gathered up and to be burned. You're, you're twice dead. You have no fruit and, and you're disconnected and dried up on the ground. You're twice dead. Jesus uses the same idea and he says, but if you remain in me, because I'm the true vine, you're the branch. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Where does the fruit come from? Where is the vitality coming from? Where is the energy coming from? It's in our connection with Christ. What really matters here is our connection with Christ. And so I think we get into these debates about grace and law, and it, and it becomes all about religion. Um, grace is a wonderful thing, but it, it's the fruit of Christ. It's what Christ brings. Really where we should be looking is this, it's, it's Christ. And I get the grace and I get the lordship and I get the relationship and, and the spiritual power changes me and transforms me and grows fruit in my life. And any leader, no matter how much they can talk about grace or talk about the law or however fine they sound with regard to scripture, if it's about religion, and not about Christ or something that's spiritually alive or this, then, then it's missing the power. Um, where does holiness come from? So the thing that Jude is warning us about, pleasure-seeking, people that have just said, because of grace, we're gonna do whatever, giving permission to what, what you may want to do or think you wanna do, um, but pleasure or envy, or jealousy, and some of you here this morning, we don't talk about envy a lot, but you just cannot get two minutes outside of it. It's just killing you every time you log onto the internet. It's just killing you. Every time you see anything in anyone else's life, it's killing you, and you're bitter because of it. Um, and the third one, just with regard to really making it all about ourselves and then being against authority. These, these four things that we see in Jude, how do those things get fixed? It's not about effort. It's about the presence of, of God. It's about our connection with Christ. Um, God says all throughout the Old Testament, be holy, why? Because I am holy. If 
somebody really important is next to you, it affects everything. If Mother Teresa is next to you, if you have to spend days or months shadowing Mother Teresa, does it have an effect on you? Right? Um, if you could spend time shadowing Nelson Mandela, does it have an effect on you? If you could go back and shadow Martin Luther King Jr. and see the world through his eyes and the racism that he was fighting in the South, does that change the way you perceive things? Um, I don't know about you, but when I'm around a celebrity, I act, I act different. It affects me. I get insecure. Um, I start thinking about what I'm saying a little too much. So if you put Bono right here with me, like I would, uh, yeah, I would totally act like an idiot. And Bono would, would want to get away from me, you know? I mean, just picture it. So it's me and Bono sitting in a room, and I'm like, Ireland, eh? <laughs> and it's like, oh, quick, save. So you like music? <laughs> oh, of course he does. Um, so Bono, is that your, like, real name? You know what I mean? Like, and then it just gets worse and it, it gets worse and it gets worse. And, um, and uh, so you put something really significant or with a center of gravity or big next to you and it, it affects you. It changes you. If God is close, you cannot sin. You just cannot be standing next to God in sin. That's why the garden's this interesting picture of, of wanting to be away from God and to hide from God when, when there's sin going on. And so we have to, as Christians in America, understand we can get all into the Christian games and into theologizing and into religion and we can get into all of these things about prosperity gospel, making it about ourselves, bringing our own latent Christian individualism into it, making it all about ourselves. We can kind of be against authority and just say it's me and God against everybody. Why? Because that leader like sucks. Well, you know what? Even the good leaders I know in the church can be critiqued. Even the good leaders aren't perfect and so if we're looking to find excuses to never join or never follow or never be together we can find all the excuses we want it's just me and God taking on the world and I'm going to tell all my friends why I'm so cool because I'm against church or I'm against Christian leaders or I'm against all this stuff and we're following um, subtly into this this um this rebellious kind of error against God's authority structures but we can do all this the stuff, but not if God's right there. Not if we're reading scripture on a daily basis. Not if we're opening our hearts and just saying, God, search me and know me. Know my anxious thoughts. Know my, know my weird desires or, or, or know my weakness or know my, my fear. Know my envy. Know my insecurity know my depression or my panic that I'm walking into church on a Sunday morning afraid of how I'm going to make it or survive. Know this, God. 
And, and at the end, after you've known all of it, then teach me what grace really is because that's the glue that's going to keep me being able to walk with you and know that you love me and accept me with all of my blemishes. And somehow we have to, to not try harder and say, well, I'm just not going to be like those bad leaders. I'm going to be a cloud with rain. It's like, don't think about the rain. Think about the bigness of God. Think about the holiness of God. Think about the love of God. Uh, this is from Eugene P uh, Peterson. I'm going to read one half now and then in a minute I'm going to read a second half. But it says this. It is also important um, to listen to scripture in its double context. The context out of which it was spoken and listened to in Israel and Christ and the context of our listening lives. God uses the same sentence to speak to different things, uh, to speak different things to different people. This is because we are at different stages of growth. We know how this works in families. A father tells a story and the two-year-old hears one dimension, the 15-year-old another and the wife still another. They all hear the same story. They all listen accurately. They all respond differently, but also appropriately. Since our contexts change daily, we keep listening to scripture daily. I think this Jude passage is really interesting. I could get into the antinomian heresy and I could talk about Martin Luther and all of us here could be like, well, that's really fascinating stuff about Christianity and church history. It's, it's wonderful. But I think there's something about this that's got to speak to all of us that says, how do we really understand this gospel and how do we contend for it? Does the holiness of God matter to us? Does the bigness of God, the power of God, does that matter to us? Does who God is matter to us that we're willing to contend for the errors that are around us and to say, I don't want to stand there, but I want to stand next to God. And I want to only know this. And so the first way we deal with this is the holiness of God. The second way is our understanding of what in Latin is called the missio dei, the mission of God. So the bigness of God, the holiness of God, we're holy because he's holy. If you take God out of the equation, so goes our holiness. The second thing is the importance of the mission of God, the missio dei. I don't think we ever really talk about this anymore. I'm really glad that the church has begun to talk about justice, that justice matters, that the state of our fellow human matters, that, that injustices around us, that we have to speak to those. I love that the church, which had neglected a lot of this talk for a long time and, and only kind of been able to find moral language but not justice language. I'm glad we have that. But what we can't do is detach that from the overall mission of God, that, that there's an inbreaking kingdom and that the kingdom is to go out and, and represent certain values and that the message of the king is a part of that, part and parcel of that, and that that message is supposed to go out and that to be a Christian doesn't mean to just sit around and say, how is Christianity going to help me? How's Christianity going to benefit me? It's amazing when I talk to people that have friends that have left Antioch or even left other churches in town, it's unbelievable that the, the most quoted phrase when people leave this church or another church in town that, that gets stated is, it just wasn't working for me. Well, we can say that about our marriage or we can say that about God 
or we can say that about, but when we start saying things like, it just wasn't working for me, it, it betrays that Christianity really isn't about me joining Christ, who is sovereign Lord and King, and that he is about doing something in this world, and as a part of his body, he's gonna utilize me, my time, my energy, my gifts, to also extend into this world and be about bringing his kingdom um, forward. I, I've been um, challenging myself lately in how I see this with regard to the persecuted church. So just recently there was supposedly 80 people in North Korea gunned down with, with machine guns on display in front of 10,000 people. We think that happened in the Colosseum, right? But that doesn't happen today. Or does it? Um, just yesterday, Kim Jong-un, who is the leader of North Korea, ordered 33 Christians uh, that, were, that are believed to be working alongside a South Korean Baptist missionary who had been recently put to death, that these 33 Christians... Um, are ordered to be executed. Um, and he's charging them with an attempt to overthrow the government. But that's a pretty crazy thing when these missionary, would-be missionary accomplices are going to be put to death in the state security department just off on the side with nobody there, nobody knowing about it. Most people in America not hearing about it. Recently in Syria, if you haven't been following along, um, it's gotten horrific with beheadings of Christians, kidnappings of Christians, and an old form of forcing people to convert to Islam at gunpoint or die. And so in Syria, multitudes of Christians literally at gunpoint are converting, having to convert or give a conversion to Islam uh, for fear of their life or their kids' lives right in front of their eyes. And they're being challenged with that. In Iraq, where there was some uh, two million Christians, the number is down, um, about a million and a half Christians down to 200,000 Christians now in a number of uh, short years. They say that 80% of religious discrimination in the world today, 80% of all the actions, so when we're talking about violence against um, people of religion, so 80% of the violence against people of religion in the world today is being done against Christians. Um, the worst place in the world to be a Christian is in Nigeria. In Nigeria, there's armed um, terrorist groups that are literally going around trying to making it their goal to try and wipe out or stamp out Christianity altogether from what used to be uh, a heavily Christian nation. There were more Christians killed in Nigeria alone last year than in all the other countries combined. Christians killed for their faith. Um, so the holiness of God, I mean, Bono affecting my behavior, the holiness of God affecting my holiness, my understanding of grace, my understanding of relationship, okay? That has to be there in our faith because it's the only thing that's alive. It's the only thing that has spiritual powers as we are able to live or pray or move in the power of the Spirit. Secondly, what I understand as the mission of God is 
unbelievably critical. Because if I don't understand the mission of God, I'm not going to care about the leadership of God, Korah's rebellion. If I don't really understand that this is about something, well then leaders just frustrate me or get in the way or I just don't, I don't have a taste for it. But leadership never uh, really has a purpose if we don't understand the mission. And when we don't understand the mission, it's so easy to become about me. You talk about the movies, and I, and I take movies to really accurately reflect reality and truth. Um, so I learn a lot of things from just movies. No, but you watch a movie, and I think this is true to form. It's a, it's a far cry different to be on the front lines and realize what battle looks like and what this whole, say, war effort looks like than to be somebody kind of in World War II that, that was way back on the supply lines, you know, getting off at five and going and drinking and, and, and just, I mean, there's a different experience. And sometimes I wonder if Syrian Christians are here and I'm, I'm back on kind of just the supply line, don't really identify with the cause and I get off at five o'clock every day and, and go figure out how to amuse myself or entertain myself or just have a good time. I wonder that. But those are, those are very different realities. And the mission of God, if I understand that, really come to grapple with that, that's gonna affect how I frame up against this Christian life and what it means to walk forward following Jesus Christ. It, it matters and it's huge. So the bigness of God, the holiness of God, understanding the mission of God, what today are you praying about in this world that really matters? I was talking to someone this week and they, um, in reference to last week, were saying it's kind of like a funnel. We always start with ourself and work out. God, oh, I'm tired today. I'm tired, my job, my boss. And then maybe we kind of go out a level and, oh, my wife or my, my spouse or my husband or whatever, my kids, they just won't listen to me. And then we go out a level. Well, you know, my, my parents or my, my uncle or my family or, you know, my, my really good friend. And then we're kind of about at our time, right? Does anything about that really force us to confront that our agenda needs to match God's agenda in the world? And this person I was talking to, I, and I love the way it looked, said, flip the funnel. God... There's someone right now um, in Syria who's getting put to death for their faith. Um, there are Christian people in the Congo who are being brutalized, women who are being brutalized. Right now, when I'm trying to decide whether to go into Wendy's or, or to go, I don't know, have Thai food tonight, God, um, please change my lack of concern or just how distant I am or how cold I am to the state of affairs in this world. Like, God, those people need prayer. They really need prayer. You know, I think I've got some stuff going on, God, but I know that that's insignificant compared to what other people have got going on. Please, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Show me the world through your eyes so that I can come up alongside you and really be mature about this and understand what's going on. And God, so... Um, because of that kind of stuff that's going on, help, help, help Kiln's College train people well. Help the church in America disciple the next generation well. 
God, help us root out the stuff or the teaching or the voices or whatever else might cheapen faith or, or water it down or chase you out of the picture to where it just becomes this kind of a dead, hollow, twice dead thing, this, this Christian culture or bubble. God, help us to, to not get that going, but the other things. Help us to do discipleship that we would go and baptize people of all nations and teach them to obey the moral law that everyone knows about, that they would really be able to follow you and be a part of what you're doing in this world. God, just, man, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. This stuff feels so big. I thought I, I could do it all, but man, as I'm even praying now, I'm realizing it's bigger than me. I can't just do this in my own effort. If it depends on my effort, God, I'm, I'm going to fail. God, shower me with your grace. Remind me of your love. God, humble me that you may lift me up. And in doing so, that you might use me and shape me and remake me to be a vessel fit for your purposes. Because at the end of the day, I know even though I've got these little things going, that what I really want, is to be, to be found there and only there. So maybe if we flip our prayers, it will change the way we see things. There was an immigration, I'm gonna read this and then Rick Gerhardt's gonna pray for our offering. Uh, there was an immigration group that came through and they went to our local congressman's office who actually has been being very rude on that front and not answering calls to any of the immigration groups and shutting doors and faces and I don't know I don't want to name the name and I don't want you to think it's the wrong guy just know that it's amazing sometimes how how cold elected officials can be to people that really want to discuss um, issues that affect communities of people but this immigration national immigration group evangelical immigration group that came through town this week it was interesting they finally got an aide uh, a brand new aide to sit down with them and so they were sharing kind of the what the thoughts are and what what the evangel a lot of the evangelical communities believe with regard to immigration reform, and they shared it to this aide, hoping that he would pass it on to, to the senator or congressman, can't remember which. Um, and then at the end, it was really powerful. The, the guy who heads this up, Hispanic leader, uh, church leader in America, he looks at the aide and said, would you pray for us? Would you pray for us? <laughs> And the aide kind of looked a little discombobulated and said, sure, sure, I'll, I'll pray for you. But I bet that shaped how that aide heard those issues. Because you can't pray for it and remain disinterested from it. Does that make sense? Let me read this last part of um, Eugene Peterson's thing. And then again, uh, Rick is going to come up and lead us into offering. Our ancestors did this better than we did. They kept listening to Scripture daily, better than we do. They came before Scripture in a listening, responding way rather than in an academic, manipulative way. Becoming familiar with their reverent listening stance before Scripture helps us see the poverty of our students getting ready for an exam approach. We are never exempt from the temptation to use and apply Scripture rather than submit to it and let God call forth things in us we didn't know were there. We have to be continually on guard. Our approach must be reading, listening to scripture, letting the word use us rather than using the word for our well-intentioned but still 
self-defined purposes. Then he quotes Jesus. The seed cast in the weeds is the person who hears the kingdom news, but weeds of worry and illusions about getting more and wanting everything under the sun strangle what was heard and nothing comes of it. Amen.